One of my favorite Orwell books is The Road to Wigan Pier. And there's a line in that book where he says uh, that we could do with a little less, this is a quote, we could do with a little less talk about capitalist and proletarian and a little more about the robbers and the robbed. I think that there is a streak in Orwell where he he genuinely wants to align himself with the common person. Um, and he finds himself critical of what he regards as kind of overly abstract political theorizing, which, you know, to be fair to him, I think was very common among the intelligentsia. It's important to remember that supporting uh, international communism uh, in the 1930s or 40s, you know, it didn't just imply being a sort of supporter of the USSR, even in some cases, you know, the case of some communists, even when it was signing a non-aggression pact with Adolf Hitler, as it did, you know, with the the Molotov on Ribbentrop Pact in 1940. You know, in some cases, it also meant allegiance to these incredibly sort of doctrinaire ways of thinking about, you know, history or thinking about history as this kind of scientific and measurable thing in a way that was very totalizing. I don't know if you've ever read Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kostler, but that's a book that I think describes and kind of explains that way of thinking uh, very well. And so that was something that Orwell was also positioning himself against. And I love this line about the robbers and the robbed, uh, as opposed to capitalist and proletarian. I think Bernie Sanders would agree with this. Bernie Sanders, when have you ever heard him talk about capitalism? You could probably find, I mean, I'm sure you can find, I'm sure he's, you know, he's mentioned it. You can find clips of him talking about it. It's not something he talks about in his stump speeches, just as he's never talked about uh, neoliberalism. Instead, he's going to the Walmart shareholders meeting and he's aligning himself with the workers and he's talking about these people who are doing the work and they're producing the wealth that makes this company function and who are being completely screwed over by their managers and their bosses for the profit of a, of a small few owners and shareholders. I think Orwell's politics, you know, really need to be seen in the same light. That is something that really defines his socialism. And I think where I disagree with it is, is I think you can go too far with that sentiment. And, and in trying to align yourself with the common person, you can assume that the common person is perhaps uh, more reactionary mm-hmm. inherently than they necessarily are. That's why I don't think, you know, uh, for example, Keir Starmer's idea of, you know, sort of a faith and flag labor party is, I don't think that's where the sort of true, you know, pro-working class politics lies. But before we turn to our last day's essay, there's just one more thing I wanted to read. And this is from 1984, uh, which, you know, I assume most people listening have probably read. For for the reasons we were talking about earlier, you know, Orwell, he's kind of become this this generic sort of signifier for anti-authoritarianism. And people really misinterpret him. The people who cast him in that way, I think, are really not listening to what uh, what he's saying. So just as kind of a final note here about Orwell's suspicion of the intelligentsia, the part from 1984 that I, that I consider the most, uh, I think the most crucial passage, comes midway through the book when Winston has discovered the Goldstein manuscript, something which purports to be a kind of explanation of the society of Airstrip One and the theory and practice of oligarchic collectivism, which is the ideology of the party which rules what has become of Britain. And importantly, in the Goldstein manuscript, this is described as something, this is a consciously thought out ideology. So what the party is doing to erase the past, you know, Orwell talks about in Notes on Nationalism, how, you know, nationalists will create propaganda and and they'll do so thinking that they're actually correcting mistakes in the past, because that's what ideology, you know, ideology can convince you that that's what you're doing. And he has this great line about thrusting facts into the past. So midway through the Goldstein manuscript, he's talking about how this society came about. And the class politics here, I think, are really interesting. He writes, it was only after a decade of national wars, civil wars, revolutions, and counter-revolutions in all parts of the world that Ingsoc and its rivals emerged as fully worked out political theories. 
but they had been foreshadowed by the various systems generally called totalitarian, which had appeared earlier in the century, and the main outlines of the world which would emerge from the prevailing chaos had long been obvious. What kind of people would control this world had been equally obvious. The new aristocracy was made up, for the most part, of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organizers, publicity experts, sociologists, teachers, journalists, and professional politicians. These people, whose origin lay in the salaried middle classes and the upper grades of the working class, have been shaped and brought together by the barren world of monopoly industry and centralized government. As compared with their opposite numbers in past ages, they were less avaricious, less tempted by luxury, hungrier for pure power, and above all, more conscious of what they were doing and more intent on crushing opposition. And just skipping a bit, he says, the invention of print, however, made it easier to manipulate public opinion, and the film and the radio carried the process further. With the development of television and this technical advance which made it possible to receive and transmit simultaneously on the same instrument, private life came to an end. Every citizen, or at least every citizen important enough to be worth watching, could be kept for 24 hours a day under the eyes of the police and in the sound of official propaganda which all the channels of communication closed. The possibility of enforcing not only complete obedience to the will of the state, but complete uniformity of opinion on all subjects now existed for the first time. So there's a lot to say about this, but I think there are two things. Uh, there's two remarks I want to make about that passage. The first is, barring a few of the professions he mentions, I mean, I don't know about teachers and trade union organizers, the antagonists in that passage are people who, as he put it, you know, were brought together by the nexus of monopoly industry and centralized government. There are people who are fundamentally bureaucrats, middle managers, people like that. And Orwell is correct that it's that sort of person who have often been the principal basis for fascism. These are people who often have a technocratic or a managerial outlook. They often come from professions that might even be considered more liberally oriented than conservatively oriented or more liberal culturally than conservative. 